Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the great fortune of connecting with Dr. William Lee. He's a world-renowned physician, scientist, speaker, and author. He is known for leading the Angiogenesis Foundation, and his groundbreaking work has impacted more than 70 diseases. He's also a TEDx speaker and the author, most recently of Eat to Beat Your Diet, one of my favorite books I've read thus far this year. Today, we dove deep into his background and the impact of how body fat impacts our health. We spoke about the role of metabolism throughout our lifetime, differences between hormones that impact fat, including leptin, adiponectin, and resistin, gender differences, the role of new drugs like ozempic and semiglutide, the role of brown fat, the impact of the microbiome and specific bacteria like acromantia, the role of nutrition, as well as lifestyle. I hope you will enjoy this discussion as much as I did recording it. Dr. Lee, it is such a pleasure to connect with you. I'm a huge fan. And I have to tell you, as I was telling you before, I get a lot of books to read for the podcast, but as soon as yours, your new book arrived, Eat to Beat Your Diet, I read it immediately. Welcome. Thanks very much. Uh, It's a real pleasure to be here. And so we were talking before we started recording, and you mentioned that this book was easier for you to write than your first book. Why was it this book at this time? Was it out of the changes that have occurred in our lives over the last several years coming out of the pandemic, but, you know, really talking about metabolism and ways and strategies that we can improve our metabolic health. Well, you know, as a fellow healthcare provider by background, one of the things that I'm sure you can relate to is that we are trained in our education to really memorize certain aspects of science that get really applicable in treatment of disease, but not so much for prevention. And yet, you know, as we go on, we start to open our eyes to the fact that many of these diseases could be prevented in the first place. So as a scientist, as a doctor, as somebody who's, you know, had a career as a communicator, my first book was really about unpacking the secrets of the body that protect our health. That's something I spent, you know, 20 years helping to develop, actually develop treatments to chase those diseases until I realized we should be preventing them in the first place. When I finished my first book, I really felt like there was a story that still was untold. And that untold story was not just about how do you protect your health, but how do you optimize it from wherever you are? And that's where metabolism comes in, because that is also, perhaps you'll also resonate with me on this, and as a fellow healthcare provider, is that, you know, I think most doctors and nurses can talk about metabolism but not so differently than how the average person can talk about metabolism who doesn't have a medical background either. We all make certain assumptions that seem like they should be true, but may not actually be true. So I decided to write a sequel. And that sequel is called Eat to Beat Your Diet, which is a trick title because it's not a diet book. It's an anti-diet book. And what it really talks about is what I'm now really passionate about, which is that if you really understand how your body works, we are all hardwired with a metabolism that serves us our entire lives. And what happens over the course of everyday existence for most of us is that we wind up actually crushing and derailing 
and actually injuring our hardwired metabolism. And then people wind up throwing up their hands saying, I don't know what to do now. And this book is really about the what is actually happening in your body, how should it actually operate, and how can we actually make steps to restore it back to its hardwired level? I think it's really important for people to understand this because I think the common misnomer and research suggests otherwise is that our metabolism slows as we get older. And you talk about in the book about the fact that from the age of 20 to 60, our metabolism is quite stable, but yet most people have the assumption and clinicians included that once you get north of 40 years old, or as women get closer to menopause or man andropause, that all of a sudden the brakes go on. And actually the research doesn't support this. Yeah, that's right. You know, one of the things that I, as a research scientist, I live for jaw-dropping moments in science, right? I mean, that's basically whether you're in a lab or you're doing clinical research, you know, what every research scientist actually tells the tale of is like, I was doing this and then this discovery happened and it like, this light bulb went off and I'm like, geez, like if this, then this must be true. And it's exciting. I mean, you know, so my passion for metabolism was truly ignited, set on fire, really just about two years ago while I was in the middle of writing this book and asking questions about metabolism, when a discovery was made, which has really changed the way that we understand human metabolism. So here's where the research study. Research study was done with 6,000 people over 20 countries, and it was led by a group of you know several dozen researchers that looked at, were asking the question about human metabolism and what should it be, right? So think about it, like the average person, like well, I should, I'm this tall and I, weigh this, and I weigh this much and this is how much I should be eating. This is how many calories, that's dieting, right? So I was writing a book about how do you beat your diet? How do you not need a diet? So that led me to say, well, how does metabolism work? Well, that's where this research study came, came into play. By the way, it was actually headquartered, the research was headquartered at the International Atomic Energy uh, Center in Switzerland. And what they did, this is a global study, they studied people that were 6,000 people that ranged from two days old to 95 years old. That's the entire human lifespan, okay? And what they did is they studied everyone's metabolism in the exact same way. And the way they did this, and the reason that it was atomic in terms of its uh, headquarters, its sponsors, is because they gave everybody a drink of water. Water is H2O, two hydrogens and one oxygen, and they tweaked the, the atoms so you can actually measure them. And that means that whether you drank, get, gave a baby, some very safe water to drink, or gave an elderly person safe water to drink, or anybody in between, you could actually measure these tweaked atoms in their breath, in their urine, or in their blood. Now, imagine this, 6,000 people studied in exactly the same way. And then what they did is when they looked at the results of, by measuring that, you actually get a sense of metabolism. You get a measure of metabolism. By measuring that, they found that, not surprisingly, everybody's metabolism is all over the map, just like you'd expect. Just like people pull their hair out and say, oh my gosh, I don't know why my sister was so lucky. She was born with a fast metabolism and I was not lucky because I was born with a slow one. That's why I struggle with weight and she can eat anything, right? That's the standard kind of trope that everybody, it's a myth, really. It's a, and it turns out to be an urban legend because when they looked at all the data and it was all scattered, they did one ingenious thing. And this is something that really, I think modern technology allows us to do. They were able to develop an algorithm that subtracted, removed from this data cloud, the effect of excess body fat based on the body size, based on the sex, based on everything else. And when they did that, which, you know, over 6,000 people, you need high technology to be able to 
really put this into play. So 20 years ago, there's no way we could have done this research. But when they removed out of this, you know, this confusing cloud of data of metabolism everywhere, they removed the effect of excess body fat. What they found was jaw dropping to me. They found that human beings are hardwired to all go through only four stages of metabolism across the entire lifespan. Zero to one, metabolism shoots sky high, about 50% higher than the adult. Phase two, stage two is one year old to 20 years old. So during you're going down, 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 down. During adolescence, when teenagers are sprouting up and eating two dinners and bouncing off the walls, I used to think, this is what I was taught, oh, well, their metabolism's going up. I just got to feed it. And actually, it's not true. Their metabolism's going down, down, down. They're actually getting bigger and they're flushing out, but their metabolism is hardwired to go down. And then from 20 to 60, it is almost rock stable. That's through pregnancy. That's through menopause, andropause, as you said, rock stable. And that's, that was shocking, you know, because what that means is that 60 is the new 20, right? So if you choose it to be, that's how your body wants it to be. And then from 60 to 90, your metabolism does slow down slightly. When you're 90, your metabolism is about 17% slower than it was at 60 or at 20. All right. And that's it. That's how we're wired. But when you actually, when they added the fat back into the system, what they found is that these four patterns of metabolism, these four stages were got crushed by the effect of excess body fat. So it's not the metabolism we were born with that causes us to gain body fat and therefore gain weight. It's actually the other way around. We are hardwired to have a certain metabolism. And as we gain extra weight, develop extra body fat from behavior, from hormones, from all kinds of life circumstances, that excess body fat sits on our metabolism and basically in many people derails it. And so the good news is that that makes it something that we can do something about because we actually have the ability to uncloak, unleash our inner metabolism. I think that's absolutely fascinating and certainly flies in opposition to everything I learned as a nurse and a nurse practitioner. But let's talk more about fat because I think people think of fat as fat, but it's actually a highly sophisticated endocrine organ. And in your book, you talk specifically about three different types of hormones. I think most people are probably familiar with leptin, but two others that are probably less known, but the interplay between these vis-a-vis adipose tissue is fascinating. Yeah. Well, so, you know, leptin is sort of the satiety hormone. It actually lowers our appetite, but people make a mistake about thinking like it's an off switch. It's not. It's really a volume switch. So just like when you're driving a car, you know, and, or maybe your kid's driving in a car, they turn the radio out really loud and you want to turn down. That's basically how all these hormones actually work, but especially leptin. And so basically it's the volume switch between our stomach and our brain. And it's influenced by a lot of other things, but basically it's like, Hey, we're getting kind of full time to slow it down. And if you eat slowly and your stomach actually, and your body fat actually produces leptin, it signals to your brain. It's kind of a text message to the brain that says, Hey, slow it down. And that's why, you know, if you gobble down your Thanksgiving dinner, all right, and you wolf it down, you'll eat two, maybe three servings, and you're going to feel like crap afterwards. I mean, we've all done it. All right. But if you eat slowly and, you know, think about how in the Mediterranean, you know, they tell you, um, or in Asia, how they tell you to savor your food, eat smaller quantities, enjoy it, eat more diversely. When you eat slowly, that text message is a chance to be sent to the brain. The brain is able to slowly reach over to the volume button and start to tweak it a little bit so that it is actually happening at the right time. You tend not to overeat. It's harder to overeat when you give yourself time. And so leptin is one of those hormones that actually controls that. 
There's another one that's actually, these are all, by the way, produced by body fat, these hormones. So this is why it's an endocrine organ, like your thyroid, like your adrenal gland, like your pituitary. Another one is called adiponectin. Now, adiponectin, you know, most people may or may not have heard about it, but, you know, this term adipose really refers to fat tissue. Uh, most people don't uh, know this, but adipem, which is where adipose comes from, is Latin for lard, pig fat. And it's because for 10,000 years, human beings have been, you know, eating fat from pig. And in the old, you know, like back in the Stone Age, you know, eating fat actually was part of energy. And that's the other key thing that I write about, which is that we should not fear or we should not fear fat, nor should we actually hate it. We should respect it and we should tame our fat. You know, it's like that German shepherd when there's a really nice shepherd, like you love your dog. <laughs> but when you have a, when there's an untamed dog, like it can be nasty, right? Like just hard to live with in the house and hard for anybody to visit your house. Same deal with our fat. You want to actually have a well-controlled tame fat. So a dip in napkin, which is also made by fat, actually is, by the way, one of the, um, it's a hormone in the blood that is present like a thousand times higher than most other hormones in your body. You know, it's important because it actually is part of our metabolism that allows our cells to absorb fuel. And so when adiponectin is high, it basically allows our cells to be very sensitive to insulin, which is the hormone that allows us to absorb energy, glucose and other forms of energy from carbs, et cetera, into our cells so that we can power ourselves. It's kind of like it's the fuel nozzle that allows our, our car engine to actually work. So that's a very important hormone to recognize as well. It's actually really good. Some foods can actually, you know, turn off, up, turn down, leptin, turn up or turn down adiponectin. And then one other one is called resistin. Now, resistin does exactly what it sounds like. It resists. And just like the rest of our body, our body's a bunch of checks and balances. They're not on and off switches. And, you know, for people who tend to follow diets, my book is an anti-diet book, but people who tend to follow diets, you know, they're all into, you know, all in or all out. And that's basically why you yo-yo all over the place. Bottom line is that it's our body's a bunch of checks and balances. It's a gigantic yin and yang. And when diponectin is absorbing energy, you sometimes need to create a little resistance to counter it. You know, you got one foot on the gas pedal and one foot on the brake. And that way that you can make the whole trip that way. And that's really the trip of our metabolism is gas pedal and brake. You know, and these kinds of concepts are really important. The fact that our body fat makes these hormones that control our metabolism means that we don't want to get rid of all of our body fat. You don't want to cut it out, suck it out, you know, artificially burn it out. Um, nor do you, you know, like a big deal right now is actually to use drugs to interfere with that text message to your brain. So you don't even feel hungry. You know, that's like smashing with a hammer, the fuel gauge in your car. You have no idea if you need more fuel. To me, I think that what we want to do is respect how the body controls our metabolism. Metabolism is all based on fuel. Fuel in your body is like fuel you run in your car. One of the most common concerns I see in perimenopause and menopause is hair loss, hair breakage, hair shedding. And knowing that over 80 million Americans are impacted by this is both reassuring, but it's wonderful to know that there are products available that can help with these symptoms. Divi is good for those with hair shedding or thinning due to stress in perimenopause or menopause. They can be helpful for addressing dry scalp. And have you wanted to take control of your hair health but aren't sure where to start? This is where a 
Divi can be hugely impactful. I love their scalp serum. And we know that the scalp serum improves the appearance of breakage, nourishes our hair follicles and removes product and oil buildup. There are some key ingredients, including tea tree oil, which works to reduce and prevent excess oil buildup on the scalp, amino acids that help to strengthen hair, fight frizz, which is my greatest concern and reduce breakage, and copper tripeptide 1, which is a small protein composed of the three amino acids to facilitate a clean and hydrated scalp, as well as hyaluronic acid, which is nourishing and hydrating to our scalps. As I mentioned, Divi is not just for those experiencing hair loss. I found it to be hugely helpful for scalp health and all of Divi's products, including their shampoos and conditioners, come together to create a full daily solution that helps women nourish their hair and get to the root of scalp health. Do you want to take back control of your hair and scalp health and do it with clean science-backed ingredients? Go to DiviOfficial.com slash Cynthia or enter Cynthia at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's D-I-V-I official.com slash Cynthia for 20% off your first order. As I mentioned, my favorite product is the scalp serum. And now that we're in the deep throes of winter weather, it is so wonderfully nourishing and moisturizing. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise. So you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I have used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code E. WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Well, because you talked about this, I'm actually going to ask your opinion about semiglutide and ozempic. You know, these are these new drugs that are out that are interfering with this communication so that people feel satiated. They don't want to eat as much. 
maybe they get a little constipated, it slows their gut motility. What are your personal feelings or are you prescribing these drugs for your patient population? Yeah, well, so look, first of all, I mean, as a medical doctor, as an MD, who's actually been involved with developing new biotech drugs for cancer, diabetes, and its complications, and also vision loss, among other dis- health conditions, I'm a big believer in using the right medicine for the right situation and the right person at the right time. I totally understand that there may be dire situations in which a prescription weight loss drug could be exactly the right thing to do for a patient. What I think is that our body is complex enough and hardwired in wonderful ways that unless you're in that dire position, reaching for that prescription drug or as a doctor writing that prescription drug, often at the request of the patient is just not the best way and probably not the right way to do it either. I think that, you know, if you think about it, like we live our lives without medication. We have to eat, we have to move, we have to sleep, we have to manage our stress levels. All those things are important for keeping us healthy. And there are times when we actually need assistance. And sometimes you need to supplement whatever your body can do. That's the role of supplements in my body. It's topping off something that you can't get or you don't get enough of. And then once you go beyond that, look, pharmaceuticals are life-saving. If you take a look at how people lived to 40 years old, you know, 100 years ago. And so I take nothing for granted. I think there can be instances in which these prescription drugs, which are quite powerful and also have some powerful side effects, are completely appropriate. But that needs to be the decision between a doctor and a patient, and ideally a doctor who is adequately informed and has really thought through things. And by the way, while we're on this topic, this is another big challenge that I think patients face all around the world, which is that the people that you're supposed to trust, the doctors, nurses who are advising you that you trust your life to in almost every other circumstance, childbirth, managing your heart attack, you know, getting a heart transplant, they're not adequately educated about diet and metabolism. And so what winds up happening is that patients become consumers of information and they will go for whatever they can get, rightfully so, okay? You know, we're all self-sufficient to look for stuff, but there's no filter and no way to tell what's really credible. Like you and I are rooted in working on credible information and credible science, but that's not true for everyone and or all the sources of information. So I think that's one of the big challenges is educating the healthcare community so that they're also able to actually communicate clearly. So obviously what you do and what I do, you know, we're one step in the right direction, but there's a lot of other health professionals that also need to, you know, step up to the plate. I could not agree more. And while we're kind of talking about fat, I find it fascinating that There are a lot of gender differences, which I think for many people, the way that a woman's body habitus or a man's ends up looking is driven by changes during puberty and other life changes. So let's talk about some of the changes that are occurring in fat distribution as we are getting older. So north of 40 into our 50s and beyond, what changes with fat deposition? Yeah, well, so you know, one of the things I talk about in Eat to Beat Your Diet, the first third of the book is really new discoveries and things you need to know about metabolism and about body fat. Both are completely able to be controlled by actions that we can take. Both are working on our behalf most of the time. They should be. And both are really under our control, right? So let's talk about body fat for a second. Before we talk about what happens in middle age and above, let's talk about some amazing things about body fat that occur long before you worry about it. And that is body fat begins when you're in the womb. So when you're 
dad's sperm met your mom's egg and they kind of combined and started to create little ball cells and started to uh, create the shape of a human. Some of the first tissues that form are blood vessels because we need a good circulation for every organ that forms. Nerves that also form and nerves run along with blood vessels. And the third tissue that forms is fat, adipose tissue. So we've got little globules of fat. You had fat long before you had a face to feed it, number one. Number two is that fat actually surrounds blood vessels and also is connected to nerves. And remember, we just talked a little bit earlier about this. It's a endocrine organ. It produces hormones that supports the function of our organs that are going to form later on. So this is way before you're even born. Number two, when you're born, think about it. Every culture in the world, every country in the world will appreciate the wonderful sight of a newborn, pudgy, chubby, They've got arms and legs that look like the balloon animals that you twist, right? Big chief, chubby cheeks, right? And in fact, fat in babies is something that we can associate with health. Look at how cute that baby is, right? If you actually saw a baby at birth that looked like a fashion model, chitral jaw, you know, thin stick arms and legs, you'd be really worried with that baby. And you'd be right. You'd think there was something wrong with that baby. And so number one, like just from the get-go, Got to realize that, you know, fat actually has a role long before you peek at it in the mirror or step on a scale. And that's really a wonderful thing. And what happens is that as we grow up from that pudgy little baby, our fat starts to redistribute in ways. Now, boys and girls, actually, when you're five, seven, eight, actually all track along pretty similarly. And the kinds of the three kinds of fat, which is, you know, subcutaneous fat, which is subcutaneous under the skin, you can see it. Visceral fat, which we need some of inside our gut. Visceral, viscera means gut. So the fat in our gut. And also some brown fat, which is, we can talk about, which is a third kind of fat. You know, most visceral fat and subcutaneous fat, you know, the subcutaneous fat is the muffin, all right, in your waistline. Visceral fat, you can't see. That's the yellow stuff hanging off the chicken when you actually open it up, all right? And then brown fat is something that we only really started to appreciate actually exists in humans. It is paper thin and it's not close to the skin. You can't see it. It's close to the bone. It's paper thin and it's around your neck. It's behind your, your breastbone. It's under your arms, a little bit in your back, a little bit in your belly. And they all form different things. But when we're kids, we actually, boys and girls, the genders are kind of convergent. They're, they're forming differently, but that's why little boys and little girls kind of look the same. You go to a grade school, you know, you could dress the kids exactly the same way. And if it wasn't for the length of the hair, they'd look at a distance exactly the same. What happens in junior high school with puberty? Hormones start pouring out. And now the gender specifics start to really flesh themselves out. Boys actually tend to start growing more visceral fat, which is the harmful fat. Now, it's not harmful until it becomes harmful, but we tend to get, as a male, we tend to start building more gut fat. You can't see that gut fat, but our waistline starts to enlarge, right? It's like just putting a lot of meat in a sausage. It's casing. It's going to get a fatter sausage. All right. The female gender starts to distribute fat differently around the hips, around the thighs, around the butt, eventually around breast tissue. Right. And so you wind up actually starting to see this wonderful distribution. This was the fascination and the focus of some of the Renaissance artists capturing the wonderful human form you know, and differentiating, you know, the male and the female figure. If you went to Rome or you went to the Louvre and you or just went online to look at paintings, some of the most famous paintings of the world, the Michelangelo's paintings, you'll see this being captured. 
in its idealistic form. All right. Now, what happens when we actually get, and don't forget, metabolism goes up, then it comes down, then it's rock stable. Now, what happens during that rock stable part is really getting to that age period that you're talking about. Like what happens during middle age? Well, you know what? Actually, a hundred years ago, we never made it beyond middle age. People just didn't make it beyond 40. But now that we're living longer and we're getting more comfortable and we have more resources around us and we are surrounded by abundance, abundance of food, abundance of ultra processed food, abundance of soda, abundance of couches and chairs and cars and you know uh, laptop screens and things that don't make us as act physically active and lifestyles that make us stressed out, right? Complex relationships, um, lots of stress from disease, economy, war. I mean, think about all the things that have come into modern human existence. I'm talking about decades ago. You want to talk about the last few years? Yeah, it's been like in sharp focus then. All these things contribute to our brain, which is one of the most important organs to allow us to make the best possible decisions. And a lot of the things that were surrounded us trick us into making not so good decisions. And so what you, you know, what you wrote your book about and what I wrote my book about is really about what's the underlying principle that one should think about to make better decisions. And so the reason that we wind up getting uh, growing the muffin at age 40 and above and the beer gut and the reason that, you know, the double chin and the flappy arms and the big thighs, the thing that, you know, look, this happens to everyone if you're not careful. And it's about being mindful. All of us, I'm not a great big person, but I can tell you, I'm sure everyone who's watching will have experienced this as well. You step out of the shower in the morning and out of the corner of your eye, you glance at the mirror and you see something you, you didn't expect to see or you don't want to see. Then what's the next thing you do? You step on the scale. And whatever that number is, probably a number that you didn't want to see. All right. So then what do you do? You're like, oh man, I got to eat better. I got to work out. I got to exercise more. And then that's the cycle. Then you start reaching for extreme things and that are being fed to us by the media. And what I think we need to do is to come right back down to basics, to recognize our body is hardwired in a particular way. We should be eating in sensible ways that like our world provided for us. And we need to sort of try to filter out some of this distraction that's out there. And by being aware and mindful, we can actually help our bodies our own bodies fight excess body fat, let our inner metabolism come to the surface, lower inflammation in our body, and also take advantage of all those useful bioactives found in foods, mostly plant-based, but not exclusively, that actually allow us to get in better shape. And that's just the food part. The whole idea of activity, sleep, stress management are also incredibly important. So there's no one solution fix all. Well, and I think that's really important because we've been so heavily influenced by not only the processed food industry, but also the media that will hang on to a cherry picked study that they then extrapolate. I mean, I'm sure this happens to you and your team on social media. There'll be a cherry picked study or, or some article that comes out and people all of a sudden are, they're not sure they're almost paralyzed, not being, not feeling confident in their decision to lean into eating more plants or having more meat or doing more physical activity or intermittent fasting, any of these strategies, but they are designed to not just be focusing on one. It's all of these things. And I love that you really speak about slowing down how important mindset is because understanding our autonomic nervous system and being in the parasympathetic, the rest and repose side of our brain is really the way our bodies are optimized to eat. Most of us are eating on the go. We're eating, standing up, we're eating off our kids' plates 
you know, we're not eating at all. We're then coming home and, you know, eating half of our refrigerator because we're so hungry. How do you think our kind of modern day lifestyles have contributed to the degree of metabolic disease that we're looking at right now? I know obviously broken metabolisms are likely a byproduct of a lot of the lifestyle choices that we're making and the hyper palatable foods that we're consuming. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What a big statement to unpack. But, you know, I mean, I think that if you take a look at all the research studies in totality, the ones that actually look at how our modern life has affected our health universally show. I mean, there are no studies that show eating excess ultra-processed food or having inactivity, being the couch potato, um, or having poor quality sleep actually do anything beneficial to our health. In fact, quite the opposite. They show that, in fact, there's degradation of our health. And now we're beginning to understand why, because the science is now, the new science of the metabolism, which is what I write about, I need to be your diet, teaches us that we're hardwired to function in a very particular way. And if we take care of how we actually operate or our metabolism operates, it will last a long time. And, you know, I try to bring things down into analogies and, and explanations that people understand. You buy a car, doesn't matter if it's expensive or, or inexpensive. The bottom line is you got an engine, you need to, to run that engine, you need to have good quality fuel or fuel in order to run that engine and how you treat your engine and the quality of the fuel that you use and, and how you drive that car. If you drive it hard, if you take care of it, if you are mindful of how you're driving the car can make all the difference between, look, in the very beginning, it's going to drive great. Everyone's going to actually have that same highway feel. You can take it on off-roading and you're probably okay because it's have the same experience. But if you start to mistreat your car over a long period of time and feed it crappy quality fuel, put in the lowest quality oil or don't put any oil in at all, run it too fast, don't change your brakes. I mean, you know, you just get in there and abuse your car. To some extent, that's what our modern life has done to us. They've so distracted us and so detached us from our, our inner selves that we're basically just ruining our vehicles. And so as a result, we're not lasting as long. And by the way, if you take a look at these um, so-called blue zones, right? Like it's got a lot of popularity. These are the five probably more zones around the world where people are unusually healthy and they live unusually long periods of time. You know, there's something mystique about how they live. I'm going to actually invite the listeners and viewers to consider something else. Let's turn that upside down. Maybe they're just living modern life in a simpler way that we should all emulate, that we should, there's nothing mis mysterious about it. In fact, they're just not burdening their existence with all the things that are distracting and cluttering up our lives. You know, if we could Maria Kondo our lives and our diets and keep things simple, we probably would all have the opportunity to be our own blue zone. And I think that that's something that is empowering to think about. You know, everyone needs a spring cleaning. And I think when it comes to the metabolism, you know, starting with your diet is actually a really great way. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armour Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armour's Colostrum strengthens immunity ignites metabolism, 
fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. I would totally wholeheartedly agree. And you talk in the book quite a bit about the impact of the gut microbiome and how that can be tied to body fat. And specific to that one particular organism that is starting to, we're starting to hear more about acromantia. Can we talk about the interplay between the gut microbiome and our metabolism and this very important, you know, organism that many people may be unfamiliar with? Okay. 
everyone's probably by now heard about gut health and thought about gut health. If this isn't something that you've heard about, ask a friend or a family member, they'll start rambling on about everything about it, okay? Here's the thing, gut health in scientific terms and medical terms relates a lot, refers to you know our gut microbiome. And our gut microbiome is really the bacteria that is mostly in the last part of our gut. It's an area in the colon called the cecum. And although not all of our body's healthy bacteria is there, a lot of it is. What's a lot? 39 trillion bacteria, that's a lot of bacteria. Our body is only made of 40 trillion cells. So we're about 50-50 bacteria and the other 50% is human, all right? And so what we realized is, and again, I'll confess this as a bona fide MD who went through medical school, is that when I went to medical school, and you probably had the same thing, Cynthia, is that I was taught that bacteria are bad, must kill bacteria, and now must memorize all the bacteria you must kill with prescription antibiotics that are necessary in order to stay clean and healthy. Well, turns out that's all like a little bit misemphasized because most bacteria that we encounter throughout our lives are good bacteria. Almost all of them are good bacteria. And we do encounter a few bad guys, you know? I mean, think about it. It's like saying the way that medical community was trained is like, everyone's a terrorist, must kill terrorists. But in fact, actually, most people are good guys. Most people are ordinary peace-loving citizens. And yeah, there's a few, you know, bad actors out there. We do want to make sure that we're keeping an eye out for them right? So it's really what's amazing to me is how modern science is teaching us to upend a lot of the traditional teachings that the medical community actually has been saddled with over the decades. So gut microbiome, our healthy bacteria living in our gut. There's a lot of different bacteria, not only bacteria, by the way, there's always also viruses. There's also fungi. There's also another type of small organism that most people don't talk about, don't even know about called archaea. That's another kind of member of the garden that's out there, but let's not go there right now. I'll tell you about the bacteria. <laughs> We're just beginning to understand the importance of the gut microbiome. And we do know that the bacteria in our gut talks through the wall of our intestines because they're living inside our intestines. They talk to our immune system and they talk to our immune system right through the wall of the bacteria. It's like they're, I would say it's like college roommates in a dorm with really thin walls. And basically the bacteria, which is one roommate, pounding on the wall to the roommate, basically saying, hey, what kind of pizza do you want? All right. And then the roommate can hear on the other side and shouts back, I like mushroom or olives. And basically our bacteria and our immune system talk to each other that way. And good, healthy gut bacteria give good instructions to our immune system. And this is really kind of a, an eye-opener to realize that our immune system is so tightly connected. And when our gut bacteria is not healthy, our, not only is our immunity, our defenses down for immunity, but our inflammation, which is another part of our immune system, goes up. And the gut bacteria not only influences our immune system, but also influences our metabolism. It influences our lipid, our cholesterol and lipid levels in our body, the inflammation actually is really important to control because if we've got extra body fat, basically we've got actually a smoldering fire burning in our body, okay? And it's our healthy gut bacteria that puts out that smoldering fire. Like we put out that fire fires, prevent it from becoming a wildfire. We need good, healthy gut bacteria. And you know, most people have not until recently paid attention to their gut. So we've all been through this before. You know, like when, when you're feeling okay. And then one week you're not feeling okay. You're gassy, you're crampy, you're not regular, or you're having loose stools and you're just not feeling that good. You're not talking about it to people mostly. Okay. 
that means that you don't have good gut health. And most likely there's something going on with your gut bacteria. We are just beginning to actually understand that we got to pay attention to that. Now, a lot of people out there say that they've got a solution. Do my stool test and get my probiotic. And what I will tell you is that we don't understand enough about it yet to come up with a definitive solution. However, there are certain bacteria that are very, very interesting. One of them is called Acromancia mucinophila. Acromancia, A-K-K-E-R-M-A-N-C-I-S-I-A. That's the first name. The last name of the genus of species is mucinophila. Mucinophila, because it actually likes to live in the mucus of your gut. Now, I learned about Acromancia mucinophila, not in a metabolism setting, not in a diabetes or an obesity setting, but actually in a cancer setting, because I do cancer research. A few years ago, I was with a colleague of mine, Dr. Laurent Sipogel, who discovered in cancer patients getting immune therapy, treatments that actually activate our body's own immune system to fight the cancer, that the people who responded well, whose immune system could be coached by the treatment to go out and destroy their own cancer, people who survived, actually had acromancia. And the people who unfortunately didn't respond, meaning their immune system did not respond, couldn't be coached by the immunotherapy, lacked this one particular gut bacteria, acromancia mucinophila. So that's really interesting. One bacteria could make the difference between whether you lived or died as a cancer patient with a particular kind of treatment. To me, like my radar went up right away, like, oh my gosh, we got to figure out more about this. And the more we actually discovered about this, so what um, Laurence Zippogel did, she took out the acromancia from these responders, cancer patient survivors, and took them to the lab and gave them to lab animals that were developing cancer and gave those lab animals immunotherapy. And so they would respond uh, if they had the acromancia from the patient. Then she gave them antibiotics to wipe out the acromancia and the cancer grew right back and killed the animals. So just like the patients. And so this was, I think, 2017. And now the research has continued to evolve. Now we're finding that it's not just cancer, okay, which is not about cancer. It's really about the immune system. Uh, our own health defenses. But another defense is really about able to tame our adipose tissue and our metabolism. People with good metabolisms have more acromancia. And this is actually a really strange observation. So I'm a scientist. So, you know, one of the important things about scientists is you can tell somebody's a real scientist when they tell you they don't know something. All right. (laughs) So here's what we don't know, but what we observed. People who are suffering from obesity actually have hardly any or no acromancia in their gut. People that are lean with good metabolisms actually have acromancia. So this is an observation that we need to pay attention to. How come one group doesn't have acromancia? Is it a cause or an effect? What is acromancia doing? Well, it looks like acromancia may be controlling the lipids, might be influencing the inflammation, you know, really, really being helpful. And so then the question is, how do you grow your own acromancia? Okay, well, it turns out that there are certain foods containing polyphenols, like pomegranate juice that contain elagitanins as the bioactive that doesn't act directly on the bacteria, the acromancia, it prompts your gut to secrete more mucus. There's more soil for the acromancia to grow. So it's basically like a gardener saying, how do I put more fertilizer for my flower bed to, to bloom, my annuals to bloom? So pomegranate juice, Concord grape juice, cranberry juice have all been studied. They all have this elagitanin. The more mucus there is, the better the acromancia grows. And I can tell you, I had a patient I once was uh, treating who was had cancer, 
she was about to get an immunotherapy for her cancer, multiple myeloma. And I told the oncologist, hold off for a second because let's test her stool to see if she had acromancia. This is as a result of my knowing about Law and Vogel's work. And so we tested her stool. She had zero acromancia. Why? Because her kids had had bronchitis. It went right through the house. She had gotten some antibiotics from you know a walk-in clinic and she had no acromancia. So I said, wait, let's grow some back. So we gave her pomegranate juice. We tried to really give her some fermented foods to really make her gut health better. We needed more mucus. We needed more gut health, more probiotics, some prebiotics, probiotics. Then we tested her again a few weeks later, and she had six times above the general population's worth of acromantia. So if you're missing it, I'm telling you, diet can actually grow it back, which is a wonderful thing. And when we actually gave her the immunotherapy, she actually responded completely like one of the best responders ever seen in history. So I'm telling you, this is not food versus medicine. In this case, it's food and medicine or food before medicine. And it's really about the body and the wonderful things that we can do to feed our body's health defenses, feed our body's metabolism. It's all stuff that's inside us. Well, it makes so much sense. And I love that it's tangible. It's not an unusual thing that people have to go purchase to be able to support their gut microbiome. Now, I want to be respectful of your time, but I would love to kind of focus in on some of your favorite foods. You do a beautiful job in the book, really talking about specific foods and compounds that can be very, very beneficial for helping support metabolism. And then briefly touch on the Mediterranean, you know, kind of concept, which is so aligned. I grew up with an Italian mother and, you know, food was savored and it took, you took long meals. There was no rushing around, but let's touch on those things. And the other piece that I want to compliment you on is that I read so many books for the podcast and sometimes there are intangible things, but you do such a nice job of describing the food item and exactly the amount that you need to consume. So you're not wandering around saying, are you talking about a cup of something or is it a tablespoon? You're very specific about your recommendations. Yeah, no. Well, thank you for your, your, your kind words. Look, I'm somebody who really grew up like you around really delicious food. I grew up in the city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where there's a lot of ethnic communities. And I went to these folk festivals where we got to sample a lot of things. Look, we all come from different places. Uh, we all have our own origin stories in terms of every culture in the world has its own food story and food traditions. And I love that. I really respect that. And one of the things in my research, you know, I talk about that in our food ingredients, there are these compounds that might be tongue twisters for people to pronounce lycopene, chlorogenic acid, zeaxanthin, you know, beta-cryptoxanthin. I could go on and on, you know, allicin, hydroxytyrosol. They're all in the book if you want to read about them. But what's important is that they're all found in our foods. They're found in things like tomatoes and apples and pears and garlic and scallions and garlic scapes and lots of seafood as well, including the omega-3 fatty acids. And what I try to do is sort of take away some of the mystery. Look, Mother Nature is very clever and incredible. She has gifted us with so many healthy natural chemicals that activate our body's health defenses that help us tame our metabolism and allow and fight body fat. So they're in there. What are some of the favorite foods? Well, I in my book, I wanted to do something that I know a lot of diet books don't. And I wanted to take people on a tour of the plain old grocery store, the way that I go through it, and point out, take them on a tour to point out the things that I see as you go around. Go to the produce section, which is usually the first section. 
what am I seeing? I'm seeing tomatoes. I'm seeing brassica vegetables. I'm seeing the broccoli, the kale. I'm seeing the bok choy, the baby bok choy. Um, then I'm seeing the mushrooms and I'm seeing the red onions. And I talk about all these things and try to provide a little bit of, you know, underneath the hood, give a little clue into what, how do we know it's good for you? And one of the things that I really do that you just pointed out, Cynthia, is I point out the human evidence. What is the clinical study? The lab study is interesting, especially the scientists, but the human study is what people care about. And in the human study, you always have a dose, an amount, a frequency, just like any medicine, which is food is medicine. So I, I publish that around. So every food that I talk about, or almost every food, I should talk about the doses. So what's interesting is like pears. Pears actually have been able to reduce waist circumference. How does it do it? By shrinking the visceral fat, the, you know, the harmful fat, the gut fat. It's kind of like a baseball glove that's like packing or squeezing your organs. And in a study that was done to show that you can lose like two inches around your waist circumference by eating pears, how much did they give? Two medium-sized pears before lunch for 12 weeks. And, what can, and they even tell you what kind of pears, okay? Uh, there were Bartler pears and Anjou pears. Hey, these are the things that you see in the grocery store. So I literally take people through the produce section and I go to the seafood section because uh, this is a whole other podcast, probably like things that people are not comfortable with fish and seafood, you know, like I didn't go around fish. I don't like fish. Look, there are so many incredible, delicious, amazing seafoods to enjoy. And I'll come back to that with Mediterranean that I actually spent a whole chapter diving into things that you'd recognize and a lot of seafood I'm willing to bet you don't recognize, like the mitten crab or the mantis shrimp. These are things that you know are out there. I, I really want to punch through the brick wall and show you that there's a lot of stuff that you haven't discovered yet when it demystify that and tell you the dose of that, of that to eat as well. And then, of course, the forbidden middle aisle. I wanted to people say, you know what, it's time to grow up and get out of this like you know, this elimination thing. Don't even go to the middle aisle. Wrong. I call the, my chapters in the book, Eat to Beat Your Diet, is called Treasure Hunt. Go into the middle aisle with your bucket, your cart, to a hunt for the treasures that help your metabolism, like navy beans, like lentils, like extra virgin olive oil, like apple cider vinegar, like dried prunes, like dried mushrooms and chili pepper powder and turmeric. I mean, just all these things that, you know, I'm trying to let people know that this is every day. Anybody can do this. This is not mystery. And this isn't about elimination. This is actually encouragement to dive right in and find the thing that fits you. So what fits me? I always get asked this question, Dr. Lee, you know, you write about food and health. You're a food as medicine researcher. How do, what diet are you on? And I tell people I'm not on a diet, but I do have a way that I eat. In my way, I call Mediterranean. I'm Asian. I grew up in a Chinese family. I had lots of Asian food. I also spent a gap year in the Mediterranean before I went to medical school. I lived in Italy. I lived in Greece. And then after that, I went to China. And, I, and what I was interested in doing on those gap years is to study food, culture, and health. And so to me, what's really wonderful is that there is a beautiful way that these natural ingredients, whether you know the chemical names or not, have been incorporated into recipes. And they're easy to find on the internet. Many of them are traditional. Your grandmother and her grandmother were making these foods, okay? Natural, fresh, local, seasonal, all that stuff that you hear about that sounds trendy and cooking them and sharing them and eating them that contain fiber. They may be fermented. They have these polyphenols in ways that everyone can enjoy and savor without wolfing your food down. And, you know, I mean, if you went to a traditional household eating like in Italy or Greece and somebody 
watched you watch it wolf through food down and hit you with a spoon because you're not supposed to eat that way, right? And I think that this is really what I talk about. Mediterranean is going back to the basics, becoming reconnected with the traditions of some of the healthiest cuisines in the world and appreciating the fact that these are delicious foods that you can really love your food, to love your metabolism and to love your health all at the same time. That's what my book is about. Well, I'm so grateful for this opportunity to connect with you. My listeners know that I always am very transparent. I think your book is the first book I've read in 2023 that is going to be a must read. Please let my listeners know how to connect with you, how to find you on social media, get to your book, et cetera. Yeah. Well, anybody who wants to buy my book, you can get it anywhere books are sold. If you want to actually find out more about me, you can come to my website at drdrwilliamlee.com, drwilliamlee.com. And I'm on social at drwilliamlee, drwilliamlee. I've got a newsletter. I always put new research information on it. I do master classes that are free. We've done all around the world, people from all around the country, all around the world actually attend these things. And I also teach for people who are like serious and hardcore, some online courses if you're interested. But more importantly, and most importantly, I want people to actually find me and realize that, that, you know, I actually really enjoy my food. And my message is that really try to enjoy yourself. You can enjoy your life, enjoy your food. Don't fear it. Enjoy it. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Vizio. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.